Good morning. Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank You for today. Thank You for this group of people that remembered to set their clock forward. And please be with us today as we continue to worship You in the book of Daniel, to learn more about Daniel and being a faithful witness. And to remember that You're in control, God. Give us ears to hear and please help us to be closer to You today as we learn more about You and Your Son. In Your name we pray. Amen. Alright, so we're in chapter 7 of Daniel today. This gets a little more difficult because we're talking about prophecy. Today we're going to look at a lot of the structure of the book of Daniel. So we're going to see how Daniel is laid out a little bit differently. We haven't really talked about this before. So before we dive in, we're going to just do a little quick review. We're going to look at the structure of the book of Daniel. And then we're even going to break it down into structures within chapter 7 of Daniel. If you'll recall, in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, he's the, the king of the Babylonians. He comes in to Judah and kind of takes over. And he takes uh, Daniel and, and a few of his friends hostage along with thousands of other people. So the first six chapters of Daniel, you see this powerful story unfold where Daniel and his three friends are taken into Babylonian captivity and Daniel is interpreting dreams and having prophecies and things like that. We see this in 1 through 6 and 7 through 12 is going to be a lot of these prophecies as they unfold. So there's a lot of neat design in the way that Daniel is laid out. It's going to really help us understand the structure of the book as we look at it, even in the book's language. And I've done a little chart because I like charts. Chapter 1 is written in Hebrew. So you're going to see the structure just in how this book is laid out in language is really helpful to help us understand how it's all put together and why it's put together the way it is. So we, we see chapter 1 written in Hebrew. Chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic. And Aramaic is another ancient language, very common in, in biblical times, related to Hebrew. And then in chapters 8 through 12, we switch back to Hebrew. And there's a, there's a reason for all that. What we can interpret from this is, hey, chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent structure placed together that way, written in one language for a reason, and then 8 through 12 is very similar. They are separate. But there's also some other neat symmetry that we can see with how Daniel's laid out. And we can see in chapter 1 that's written in Hebrew is all about Daniel and his three friends, right? They're very young and they're recruited, uh, if you recall, to work in the palace under Nebuchadnezzar. They're pressured to give up their beliefs as they're, they're renamed after the pagan gods of Babylon. They're pressured to eat these foods that are outside of their religious practices. But they don't give up. They don't give in. They stay committed and they stay faithful. And because of this, they end up being elevated by the king. Next, in chapter 2, which is now switching to the Aramaic portion, this also has a really cool symmetrical design. First, we have the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. He's having a dream and he needs it interpreted. If you'll recall, only Daniel knows how to interpret that dream. And the dream is of that statue. And the statue is made up of four different types of metals that talks about the sequence of how these empires are going to come into play. And then finally after he sees the statue, that huge rock comes in and, and crushes the statue. And it just destroys it. And Daniel says the dream is a sequence of human kingdoms after Babylon that will bring violence to the world and that the final kingdom, God's kingdom, will come and humble these others and heal the world with God's justice. Well, chapter 3 tells a story of Daniel's three friends who refuse to bow down to the king or, or worship that statue that Nebuchadnezzar builds. And they're thrown in the fiery furnace where God delivers them from death, and they're exalted again by the king, who actually recognizes that God is the God above all gods through this particular trial that his three friends went through. So again, a story of faithfulness. 
The next chapters, 4 and 5, give us a pair of stories about the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar, who are both filled with pride, right? They're in a position of great authority, and they kind of really egotistical, self-centric, as you can imagine you would be when you get to be the, the king over most of the world. All this imperial power that they have, but God steps in and warns them. And just like in chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret these dreams that they have. And he says that both kings are supposed to humble themselves before God. Of course, they, they refuse. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, he loses his mind. He's turned into a beast, essentially. And then after a while, he humbles himself. And he's brought back into power. And he recognizes that God is the one true God. Belshazzar refuses to humble himself before God, doesn't recover from that, and he's killed that very night. Well, chapter 6 is the pair chapter to chapter 3. So you can kind of see how chapters 2 and 7 are going to talk about dreams. 3 and 6 are stories of faithfulness with the fiery furnace and the lion's den. And then 4 and 5 are pair chapters. We have Nebuchadnezzar's pride and Belshazzar's pride, which are going to cause them to fall. So chapter 6 being the pair to chapter 3 is where Daniel refuses to worship the king. Remember last week we, we talked a lot about this. They kind of trick Darius into saying, hey, make a law and everybody has to worship you for the next 30 days. And if they refuse, they should be killed. So the satraps trick him into writing that law. And because of the law of the Persians at the time, he can't go back on his own law. So this all happens because of Daniel's honesty. Remember, he's one of the three guys who are out there collecting taxes. And he's collecting more taxes than everyone else. Well, he's not really collecting more. He's giving it over to the king, where the other guys are kind of skimming off the top. So Darius decides, hey, maybe I'll put Daniel in charge of all of this activity. And the other guys don't like that, because if Daniel's put in charge, who's going to get the money? The king will. They won't be able to have their own summer lake houses and things like that. Maybe jet skis and all the other things that they want to have. And Instead, what they do is they throw Daniel under the bus. They, they get King Darius to write this law, and he can't go back on his law. So they throw Daniel into the lion's den. And we saw that even though these folks conspired against Daniel, the tables get turned on him. Because the angel steps in and seals the mouths of the lions for the time that Daniel's in there. And Daniel's brought out. And them and their families are thrown in. So Daniel, again, this is a, chapter 6 is another story of faith. So we can see chapter 1 is all about Daniel and his three friends being recruited. Then you've got 2 and 7 paired together talking about dreams. 1 is Daniel's, a dream that Daniel interprets for Nebuchadnezzar. And 7 is the dream that we're going to talk about today, which is about prophecy. Three and six are stories of faith, faithfulness, paired together with the fiery furnace and the lion's den. And then four and five, stories of pride and man's fall because of putting pride before God. So chapter seven is the pair to chapter two. We have another dream, but this time it's to Daniel and Daniel alone. And we're going to see as Daniel has this dream, it's going to cause a lot of turmoil for him. He's going to really be upset trying to interpret prophecy. He even has trouble, even though he's seeing this dream and it's taking place in front of him, he has trouble interpreting it himself. He's so scared and it's just so overwhelming that it takes an angelic messenger to actually step in at the end of chapter 7 and interpret this dream for him. As we look at 1, 3, and 6, it's kind of stories of faithfulness despite persecution meant to have us have hope and be faithful witnesses. Four and five are about human kingdoms rebelling against God and becoming like beasts, as seen literally in Nebuchadnezzar's instance. Chapters two and seven are about dreams that encourage patience. 
And God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom to the world and vindicate his suffering people. So that leads to the question, when will all of this happen? Well, this is what the final chapters of Daniel are all about. The when and how this is all going to take place. We're not going to get a clear answer on any of this. But we will get a clear understanding of one thing. And that's God's in control. He's got this. We're not going to be able to interpret this down to exactly what's going to happen and what minute it's going to happen. That's not meant for us to do. But we will get the understanding that God has got all of this. He's in control. So we're going to look at Daniel chapter 7, if you want to turn there. And we're going to talk about this in two major divisions. The first half is going to be the dream that Daniel has, which is verses 1 through 14. And the second half is going to be about the interpretation of the dream, which is 15 through 28. We're going to look at that in more detail. So the first half, 1 through 14 here, we're going to break that down. 1 through 8 are going to be the four beasts. 9 through 12, the ancient of days. And 13 and 14, the son of man. So this is the first prophecy in the book revealed directly to Daniel. The other prophecies were revealed to King Nebuchadnezzar, but they were interpreted by Daniel. So this is the first one that he gets. So let's look at Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. So where we are historically, remember last time chapter 6 was about Darius. Well, Darius comes after Belshazzar, so uh, Daniel's not necessarily written sequentially. It's not written in order. We're jumping back now to the time of Belshazzar. So it's the first year of Belshazzar. And Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's son or maybe grandson. So you got Nebuchadnezzar, then he moves on, he dies, and then Belshazzar takes over, following him in lineage, and then Darius comes after that. So, not to be confused, chapter 6 is about Darius. The lion's den happens after this event in chapter 7. So, chapter 7, verse 2. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The four winds of heaven. The four winds of heaven are creating a raging storm on, on the sea. This means that the following events that he's going to talk about are ordained by God. And if you remember from our study in Revelations, this might look familiar to you because if you look at Revelations chapter 7, verse 1, it says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the tree, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. So God pauses the four winds while he selects the 144,000 and sets the seals. In Daniel, the four winds stir up the sea or the nations, out of which arise four beasts. And we're going to talk about the four beasts. When we think about these winds and the turmoil, perhaps it's God, He deals in order, and the earth deals in chaos. All right, three. Now we're going to get into the four beasts here. Seven, verse three. And four beasts, four great beasts, came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. So generally it's agreed that this beast represents the Babylonian Empire and King Nebuchadnezzar in particular. The description uh, certainly fits here with what Nebuchadnezzar, you know, his plunge from power and how all that took place and his loss of sanity in chapter 4 where his wings are plucked off as we see here in the vision. Later, Nebuchadnezzar is brought back and reinstated into power. He's turned back from beast 
into man. So while God tells neither Daniel nor us that it's, the beast represents Nebuchadnezzar, he does reveal the head of gold in the vision in chapter 2 that he said does represent Nebuchadnezzar. We see that in chapter 2, 36 through 38. Since the head of gold seems to describe the same king and kingdom as the first beast, it may not be too far afield to conclude that Nebuchadnezzar is the king represented by the first beast. So the first empire is the Babylonian Empire, the coming of that the lion with wings like an eagle. Also, in many places in the Old Testament, Babylon is symbolized as both a lion and an eagle. You see those representations all over the place. So by far, when you look at this, the first beast that we're talking about here is the best of a bad bunch. He's more beastly in the beginning and more human towards the end, paralleling the character of Nebuchadnezzar. This also underscores that these four kingdoms go from reasonably good to unbelievably bad. The only human things mentioned of the, of the fourth beast that we're going to talk about are his eyes and his mouth. His mouth is used to speak boastfully. So as, as you see this, the first beast is more human-like, and as we go two, three, and four, it's going to get worse and worse. So chapter 7, verse 5, And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. This is that kingdom of the Medo-Persians. And we, know, we saw this in chapter 6 when Darius takes over. And we know this because in chapter 8, Daniel has another vision. And we'll see this next week when we talk about it in more detail. But just to give you some context of where we're getting the idea here, Daniel chapter 8 has this vision of the kingdom is described differently, but it's stated that it's the Medo-Persians will be the second kingdom. If you look at chapter 8, verse 18, he says, Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep, with my face to the ground. But he touched me and stood me upright. And he said, Look, I'm making known to you what will happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. The ram, which you saw, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And this is the second kingdom that he's talking about. So we could tie that back and say the kingdom that he's talking about with this bear is the Medio Persians. We can even look at this, uh, some of the symbolism when you're looking at this bear. We see this bear or parts of this bear again in Revelations. So if you look at Revelations 13, verse 2, it says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. So the feet of a bear, perhaps a foundation of laws that they represent. So we see the laws of the Medes and the Persians could not be broken. Perhaps the feet represent the organization of the Persian government structure. They were known for their bureaucracy, right? So we saw this in chapter 6. Remember, Darius couldn't take back the law that he wrote about worshiping him for 30 days. So if you, if you worship, didn't worship him for 30 days, then you're thrown in the lion's den. So he couldn't even take that back, even though he was the one making the law. So this, this really thick red tape bureaucracy thing they had going on, perhaps that's what the bear represents there. Back to Daniel 7, verse 6. After this, I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which on its back had four wings. The beast also had four heads, and the dominion was given over it. So the third beast is meant to represent the Grecian Empire founded by Alexander the Great. So he's the next one in history. So you've got the Babylonians, then you've got the Medo-Persians, and now you've got Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire. So we know from this from history, but also from Daniel 8.20 again, he's going to talk about the goat and the ram where he's referencing Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great and the Greeks, they're going to rule from 331 to 31 B.C. for approximately 300 years. The symbolism here with the leopard is very appropriate for Alexander the Great because as we discussed last week, they rolled through kingdoms very, very quickly. Nobody really put up a fight for them. They kind of moved through the land, 
and pulled up to the city and said, uh, hey, throw out the heads of your rulers and we'll replace them with other people who will provide security and, by the way, lower your taxes. Aha. Or we'll come in and murder you all. Your choice. Well, usually the heads of the rulers came out and they would just take over and keep moving. So now think of this leopard, right, this great leopard, how quickly a leopard moves. So kind of neat to think of how fast Alexander the Great's armies moved through the land, but now throw wings on its back. And I'd like to see a gazelle escape that on National Geographic Channel. You know, just imagine how fast that uh, their armies move with lightning speed. So again, they pull up, give the ultimatum, throw out the heads of your rulers, or we're going to come in and kill you all. It's a pretty good business model for Alexander and company. They pull up and take right over. No big deal. No loss of life. So looking back at Daniel 1 through 6, you have the great kings who gained very large empires through extreme military might and decisive victories. Yet their kingdoms, they're only temporary, each rose and then they fell. So we'll continue on. Verse 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a beast dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little horn, uh, I'm sorry, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there, in this horn, were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth, speaking pompous words. So we saw the first beast, kind of, uh, we could see Nebuchadnezzar in that beast, um, given the heart of a man, the mind of a man again. So we saw a little bit of a man there. The second is just a beast. The third is even a bigger and badder beast. And now this beast, the only thing human-like about it, are the way his mouth is speaking these pompous words, speaking blasphemy. So the fourth beast is different than the other ones mentioned. Like the others, it symbolizes a vast and powerful empire on earth. Yet it's different. It has ten horns and still another small horn. This beast corresponds with the statue of Nebuchadnezzar that we saw in chapter 2 in his dream, but it represents the Roman Empire. You can see the iron teeth corresponds with the legs of iron on that statue in chapter 2. Alexander conquered by the rapidity of his troops moving so quickly through the land, where Rome conquered by ruthless crushing of other people. It devoured and crushed, and anything that was left trampled with its feet. And that's how Rome did it. They would move in and just kind of take over and just crush anything that resisted against them. So we see the, a beast similar to this again in Revelations 13.1. Revelations chapter 13 verse 1 says, Then stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. So the Roman Empire went from 31 B.C. until today, 2017, and counting. So we're looking about 2,048 years and counting. We are still Romans. That's what we're kind of trying to portray here, help you understand. What's changed since then? Well, we talked about this last week, but our road systems, they're still Roman, still the same kind of structure, still Roman-based designs. Even our water and sewer systems are very similar to what they put in place. Our culture is predominantly the same as the Roman culture. Our government is like theirs. We both had legislative, executive, and judicial branches with a system of checks and balances. Both have social packages to help the poor through taxation of other people to help the citizens. We have football stadiums. They had gladiator coliseums, but pretty much the same thing. There have been some pretty major changes since the fall of ancient Rome, but essentially we're still Rome. We notice here also this little horn is not an animal, but a man speaking pompous words. This will happen during 
this Roman Empire. The person will be a powerful person, as in the Bible, a horn usually used to represent someone very powerful or a powerful kingdom. So we kind of get this sense that this fourth kingdom, being Rome, is going to last a long time, obviously, as it has. The fall of ancient Rome, and now you might want to call us New Rome, but essentially it's the same thing. This has been going on for a while. So moving on, now we're going to talk about the Ancient of Days. And uh, we're in verse 9 here, Daniel 7, verse 9. So we've seen the four beasts, the rise of the fall and fall of the, of, the four, of the three empires, and we're in the fourth empire now. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair on his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. So here we see Daniel is now seeing a courtroom type setup where we get to see the Ancient of Days, God, seated. He's wearing pure white and his hair is also white. So those of you with gray hair, you should be honored. Your hair is like God's hair. Don't be embarrassed by it. You might not get to be called Ancient of Days, but you sure get to be called Ancient. (laughs) Congratulations, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, So God's sitting on this fiery throne with fiery wheels. Again, as we age, we might get to sit in a wheelchair. Hopefully yours isn't going to be on fire like God's. But we also see this river of fire issue forth from him. This is another tie into Revelations 19 and 20 where we get into the lake of fire. So a whole bunch of people praise him. And then the court is seated and the books are open. It's time to get down to business. So God is seated. We're ready to do some judging here. So verse 11. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away. Yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So this river of fire destroys that little horn, also known as the Antichrist. That's running off at the mouth, and he gets destroyed by God with burning flame. You know, whether God is this river of fire or this lake of fire, and evil or unrighteousness can't exist in his presence, or he throws him into this river or this lake, who knows? But either way, we understand that this, this purifying fire talked about in Revelations is what the Antichrist is going to get exposed to and destroyed. Verse 13 I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one, shall not be destroyed. The Son of Man. So let's look at Mark 14, 60 through 62. Verse 60 says, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So Jesus obviously sees himself as fulfillment of this particular prophecy, as the Son of Man. He is brought before God and given dominion over all things, and his kingdom will never be destroyed. So we've had the four beasts representing the four different kingdoms sequentially, with Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then the Grecian Empire, and finally Rome. Then we see the Ancient of Days come in and judge the Antichrist and destroy him with fire. And finally, we see the Son of Man bringing the eternal kingdom. So that's the first half of Daniel 7. Now as we look at the second half, which is 
the divine interpretation, we're going to see that in verse 15, we're going to see a lot of distress out of Daniel as he's trying to interpret prophecy. And then we're going to get a general interpretation in 16 through 18. Then we're going to get a fuller interpretation in 19 through 27. And then in verse 28, we'll see Daniel's response. So let's look at this uh, vision as it's interpreted. In verse 15, it says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings, which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled residue with its feet, and the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth, which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints, and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it into pieces. The ten horns are ten kings, who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue the three kings." He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, and times and a half a time. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So the book of Daniel and Revelations obviously are tied very closely together as one helps explain the other. Hence, in the book of Revelation, these same ten horns and the little horn appear again. Although the little horn is simply referred to as the beast in Revelations. The beast in Revelations 13 will hate the saints of God because they obviously will refuse his demand to be worshipped. And thus, he will persecute and kill many of them. So let's look at Revelation 12 through 14. And we'll see the same kind of layout. Revelation verse 12 says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. They are of one mind. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. They are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. These will make war with the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. So the ten horns, ten kings, are a confederacy of rulers that give their support to the beast. In light of how the ten horns and the beast are portrayed in the book of Revelation, one can safely conclude that they will appear on the stage of history during the Great Tribulation, which is the three and a half years preceding the second coming of Christ, and where there will be significant changes imposed upon society. Thus one can conclude that there's a lengthy gap between the time of the initial appearance of the fourth beast as ancient Rome and the latter stage represented by the ten horns and the little horn as the Antichrist. So there's going to be a long period of time there as obviously it's already been 
2,048 years and counting. All right, Daniel chapter 7, verse 28. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So another way to say this would be uh, his countenance or his facial expressions changed. He went pale and kept the matter in his heart or kept it to himself. He didn't go out and talk about it. In summary, Daniel's dream in chapter 7 says that it's going to be four great empires starting in his current time. He's seen Babylon already rise. Next is going to come the Medo-Persians that we saw in chapter 6 with Darius when he ends up getting thrown in the lion's den. So Daniel's going to be alive straddling the first two beasts of the four. Then comes the kingdom of Alexander Great and finally Rome where we are today. During our time, much of this is still to play out. We see the little horn or the Antichrist will rise up and then God, the Ancient of Days with his white hair and his fiery wheelchair are going to destroy the Antichrist with this river of fire. Finally, the everlasting kingdom of the Son of Man will begin. Now we don't know when all this is going to happen nor is it our job to figure this out or to speculate when it's going to happen. What we do know is God's in control and that's what we need to remember is God's got all of this. The book of Daniel and Revelations make it perfectly clear. Our job is just to be a faithful witness. It's just to to be an overcomer, to go through our fiery trials and overcome and be a faithful witness to God. So Daniel, a godly prophet and obviously a man of unshakable faith, we've seen this throughout the first six chapters, has been steadfast in his daily walk and fellowship with God throughout the first six chapters of the book of Daniel. Nothing's caused him to panic or depart from his faith and practice as a godly Jew. Daniel's first inner turmoil occurs in chapter 7. A revelation from God in his sleep discloses the future events which Daniel finds most troubling. Twice in chapter 7, Daniel speaks about this with this, this great distress. We see it in 15 and we see it again in 28. Receiving prophecy often causes a bunch of turmoil or stress as it did with Nebuchadnezzar when he got his dream. And again with uh, Belshazzar. When we had his dream, Daniel finally interprets Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. And we see this again in other, the other three prophecies to him in later chapters. So next week we begin the Hebrew section again in, in chapter 8 through 12. We switch back to Hebrew with the, the next prophecies of Daniel. That's a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really hard to, uh, to go through this and really take it all in with all of the symbolism and everything that's going on. And if, if you can't do it, you know, well, you're in good company. Nobody can. It's just remembering, hey, God's got this. God's in control. We just need to be faithful witnesses. It's laid out for us in Daniel. It's laid out for us again in Revelations. And all it does is help us have a little more faith that there's a promise and there's a hope. Have faith and be a faithful witness. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this group of believers here today. Thank you for Daniel and his example of how to live life through faith, Lord. Thank you for giving us hope through these prophecies. Please be with us as we seek to continue to try to live our lives in faith the way you intended us to, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.